a little late night podcasting. At least that's whenever we are recording. This is the Icy Takes podcast. And Jeff, it's been a hard week for you. I could only imagine how difficult Wednesday was. So I'm just going to give you the stage here to maybe just hash things out with everything. Dave, Dave, Dave. Um, it has been a rough week. It's been a rough week. Um, going into Wednesday, I was excited, nervous, that kind of pent-up energy that you're waiting for on game day, knowing your season's on the line, and to have it end pretty much before your team gets to swing at one pitch, um, it hurt. It hurt a lot. Um, after after the final out was recorded, um, I was mad, embarrassed, kind of sad as well. But the thing that I keep telling myself with the with the Atlanta Braves after losing thirteen to one in Game Five, giving up ten in the first inning, which was an MLB playoff record, um, we'll be back next year. And I know. A lot of people in my phone. I have the I have the evidence. There's a lot of people that that had jokes, um, some some hate texts that that you know. Oh, the Braves choked again. Braves Braves can't win. But I keep telling myself they're young. We'll be back again next year. It's another learning experience that you have to close out that series in St. Louis. You can't allow Game Five to happen because anything can happen. Even your worst nightmare can happen. So we move forward. We make some adjustments in the offseason. Um, Josh Donaldson is the big question mark right now. Do you bring him back at third base? Or do you move on and maybe it's Austin Riley's time to shine at third base? That is to be determined in the offseason. We, uh, we lick our wounds. We move on. And to 2020, it will be an interesting year. But now... The one bright spot is it's hockey season, and the Penguins are rolling. We'll get to that later when we talk to talk about some hockey talk, but that's all I have to say about the Division Series. If you have any more hate tweets or hate texts, please send them my way at jchrist underscore 51. Like Dave says, like your Lord and Savior, I'll be more than happy to answer any Atlanta Braves questions or comments you folks may have. That's all I got to say, Dave. Okay. All right. Now, uh, I'll ask you other questions as the show goes on. But I will say, you're not the only one to be hurt by the Cardinals in Game 5 in the past 10 years. 2013. And I had I actually even had a bet on the line that, the, that whoever represented the losing team with my one friend who is a Cardinals fan and me being the Pirates fan had to rock... Just a mustache for the month of November. And just the way game five went about wasn't as just horrific as the Braves, but the Pirates only scored one run and the Cardinals put up six. And I I know how that feels, Jeff. It's just, it's, it kills you in the inside. It brings you down to the point of no return. So let me ask you this about um, that National League Division Series. Um, you said the final score was 6-1, right? That, that game, for the most part, was pretty 
close till the end, right? Like they they might have gotten some garbage time runs. Oh, um, for the most part, that... but the Pirates never had a lead. Okay, but they were still like in it, right? There's they were still effectively in it for most of the game, correct? Yes. Um, okay. It, essentially. So, got, yeah. so uh, I'm I I am going somewhere with this, but go ahead. Well, actually, like I I was going to to bring it up and. One thing that I didn't even realize um, was that that same year, the Dodgers beat the Braves. So we were both hurt that year. Um, yeah, the final was 6-1. to one, Adam Wainwright with the win. Garrett Cole with the loss. And it was two runs in the second inning, one in the sixth, and three runs in the eighth. So you could say a 3-1 win, 6-1 win, but regardless, it was that one run and never having a lead. So... Now, let me ask you this. Would you rather be in that position where you're, you're nail-biting, you're nail-biting, and then effectively it looks like in the bottom of the eighth is when the wheels kind of fall off and the game's essentially over at that point? Or would you rather be a blowout once you get to, like, the second or third inning and then from the fourth inning on it's pretty elementary you're going to lose? Because, honestly, I would have rather had – the 2013 pirate ending where you're in it, you're battling and then the better team just comes out on top rather than giving up 10 in the first inning in before you've even swung in a pitch, the game's over. Yeah. Get, I already chew my nails as it is, but give me the nail biter. It gives you something to watch and it gives you some hope and you are still managing the team from your couch. Whereas you're done right away at the beginning. Like I don't even care what people were saying about they can still make that comeback. You got to stop it. That's not happening. Right, right. And and the thing that I I keep kind of looking back on, and it's the one thing about baseball. I don't know why. Maybe it's just sports in general. Is that when it's when it's close and you're nail biting, and you know, for an example, let's say Paul Goldschmidt hits a hits a home run in the in the tenth inning off uh, Mark Melanson, and the Cardinals win 3-2. I can hate Paul Goldschmidt for the rest of my life and say, that son of, that son of a gun, sorry, I, I didn't know if I wanted to swear there or not, that son of a gun kill, killed my team's chances at a World Series that year. But now I, I have to hate the whole Cardinals organization, from, from the GM all the way down to the third-string catcher. I have to hate them all because you know why? They all got a hit against us. They all scored a run. You, like... I, I, I think that's like the, the most painful thing is there's not one individual I can hate more. I can't even hate Jack Flaherty for only giving up one run because he, he, all he had to do was throw strikes for, for what, six innings. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, it's painful for you. It's painful for me, but I think, I think we've gone on too much about this. We all know that the, that the Cardinals have you know, bested our teams throughout all the years. So why don't we just um, talk about, one question, Jeff. This is the one thing I wanted to ask you. Do you think Brian Snicker, um, do you do you think he mismanaged how he used his starting rotation for this series? I've heard that question a lot, and I, I get why, because you only got Soroka once. But the thing that you have to look at, too, is that Mike Soroka also was not the same pitcher at SunTrust Park as he was on the road. His numbers, um, though they weren't completely one-sided, they were significantly better on the road. And looking at the start that he did make, which was game three, uh, that put the Braves in the position, which they were 
effectively, you know, a couple outs away from winning the series in game four. So if they win that series in game four, you have Mike Sirocco ready to go for, uh, for game, game one of the National, National League Championship Series. So I think it just can't – the reason this question is coming up is because of the way game five ended. And I'm perfectly okay with the way that he, he ran the, um, the rotation. And I, 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 I get why people are skeptical about it, but I think it's a – if it's successful and they move on, no one's saying a thing. But the fact that it didn't work is why people are questioning it. Well, anytime anything doesn't work, it will always be questioned. Right, so. right. But, but again, look how close they were to winning game four. Like, I, I, I think if, if they just get ran out of Bush Stadium in game four and, the, and they get ran out of game five like they did in, um, in game five, then you can say, okay, yeah, like th- this was severely mismanaged. But the fact that they were, they were what? what, five outs away from winning game four and the Cardinals rally back. I think it was, I think it's more of a, the, you know, eventually the players have to execute. And I I think they got a pretty good, pretty good start from their game four starter. And then unfortunately the wheels completely fell off in, uh, in game five. So um, I think he did looking at the numbers. I think he did an all right job. I'm not going to say he did a good job, but I think he did an all right with, all right with the way that the um, the uh, pitching rotation was was managed. I think this can be, at least in my eyes, can be classified as being too cute because Soroka, would you say, was the best pitcher on that staff this year by far? Yes. You need to go with your best pitcher right away and set that tone. Now, no, the Braves did win. Or no, the Cardinals won the first game, right? Yes, and I think that's what kind of threw a little bit of a a um, little wrench in the whole operation, too. I think if the Braves won game one, maybe you go to Soroka in game two, and then you know, you're, you're able to, okay, if we can win two in Atlanta, now we just have to win one out of the next three. And you're because. able to come back with Soroka in game five. If you're, if you're looking at the way that he managed Fulton that who pitched game two in game five. So, what I'm trying to get at is that, you know, you had Fulton Nevich, who back in May was, um, wasn't really the pitcher that everyone saw last year on this team, who he probably would have been classified as the ace of the club last year. I think you just always have to go with the best pitcher first. You got to go with uh, days of rest. So, Soroka pitch that Sunday for any reason, he's not going to go game one. Like Jack Flaherty didn't pitch game one because he pitched Sunday to lock up the division. The Cardinals went with the the big boy. They set it up so that he would have to pitch that last day in case it got down to that point, and it worked out for them. I think this was Snicker maybe planning too far ahead and worrying about the next round when they didn't really get by the task at hand. And like you already said, they were four outs away with the lead on the road to clinch up the series with how they performed it. But I still think with the way you run that rotation, that series, you're planning too far ahead and you're not looking to maybe get get put yourself in the best opportunity to win at the beginning of the game 
because I would have much rather had a Soroka start game five rather than Fulton Evich. Right. And I, I think too, the thing that, and I, again, we're not, we're not in Atlanta, so we, we're not going to know what's going on as far as what people were saying about how everything uh, panned out and everything. But is is not the, mo- the more disappointing thing out of anything is that um, Dallas Dallas Keuchel starts. I don't think he made it past the fourth inning, and in, um, in any of his starts or the fifth inning, I should say. Right. I think, but and and for a guy that that had you know held out for as long as he did, and um, the amount of money he was commanding, and to not get a quality start from, I mean, effectively he would. He was the ace, effectively by name and by how much he got paid and all, and all that. I think that's the more disappointing thing out of out of all the things that went wrong was if you get one quality star from Dallas Keuchel, I think that series is a completely different story. Well, yeah, and I'm not trying to say that Brian Snicker lost this lost the series for the Braves. It was just a meltdown. Well, not really a meltdown. Just clutch hitting by the Cardinals in Game Four. And then the meltdown in the first inning of Game Five. Like, so you take those two scenarios out. Braves win in Game Four, obviously. Right, so right. This isn't to to bash on Snicker because, as much as I love Freddie Gonzalez, like Snicker is a great manager and he's doing a fine job with the absolute youngest team in all of baseball to be. Uh, they won the division last year and they won the division again this year. Flirted around with battling for the number one seed until the last two weeks. This team has a good future. So when you look at the way Snicker managed his rotation, let's go to the other series and see how Davey Martinez, I think, just basically pulled all the right triggers at the right time. And I called it, I don't think a lot of other people did, the Nationals come up in game five against the L.A. Dodgers. Jeff, I mean, I think Davey Martinez is the best manager or made the right, best moves in all of the first round in all of the series. Yeah, I you got to like how he managed his, his bullpen because the big question mark for the Nationals pretty much all year was their bullpen. So in the, in the middle part of the series, games three and four, um, I thought it was real interesting that he was – he was going to his starters. He was bringing in Patrick Corbin in, in the middle of games. Uh, I believe Steven Strasburg came in in, um, in the, wild the wild card, card game. game. The, the wild card game. Max Scherzer came in out of the bullpen in the middle of the uh, division series. So the fact that he said, okay, you know, nobody trusts our bullpen. That's fine. We're just going to lean on our rotation to get us through uh, the middle innings and whatnot. And then when we, when we get to our closer, you know, he'll shut the door and everything. So I thought that was um, – that was a real interesting thing, the way that the Nationals handled the, the bullpen situation, because let's face it, that's how baseball is in the playoffs now. It's 100% on bullpens. Um, the term starter is completely thrown out anymore. And um, the one thing, though, that I will say is if there is a man in the whole playoffs that needs a hug more than anybody, is it not Clayton Kershaw? Yeah, that's It's him and Dave Roberts. Yeah, I mean Dave Roberts. I mean, I I still think he's a good manager. I think he he's just a victim of execution from his team at this point. Uh, well, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it was victim of execution by the team, but I don't think he put Clayton Kershaw in the best situation to win that game. 
I mean, we always we know the name Clayton Kershaw. He's essentially um, the pitcher of our generation. Is that fair to say? One of, if not the the pitcher of our generation, to bring him in in a situation in which you need one out against a lefty with against Adam Eaton. Now, I don't know about you, Jeff, but I'm pretty sure that if I'm a manager of any team, I am not shivering in my boots about Adam Eaton. Yet, he is a decent player with a, a career, I want to say, a career average of 285. So, I mean, he, he, does get, he does get hits, but he's not that, like, Hall of Fame caliber player. You bring him in to get that one out against Adam Eaton, and he does that. It's confusing as to why they didn't bring in someone else to maybe even save Kershaw for the next round, or they just thought they could ride him out until the end of the game. Um, but I don't. I think this is more on Roberts not trusting the the team that he had uh, aside from Clayton Kershaw, who has a history of just melting down in the playoffs. And he gives up the back-to-back home runs to Rendon and Soto on three pitches, the same amount of pitches it took him to get that strikeout, and he's gone after six pitches and one-third of an inning. I think this is... I think you are correct. Like, Clayton Kershaw does need that hug, and we can supply that um, through the airwaves, so I'm making that hugging motion right now. But I think this is just as much as on Dave Roberts for leaving a man out there who has a history of this in the playoffs and not essentially letting him out there to die, but letting him be the one suffer from this. Yeah. I I think he, I think Dave Roberts got to a point where, okay, I have effectively the best pitcher in baseball, Clayton Kershaw. I mean, I don't know if, if he's still at that status, but he's still a very elite pitcher in baseball nowadays. Um, I just think that he just said, I'm going to give you one of my best because I, I believe Walker Bueller was a starter for game five, correct? Yes, yes, he was. Okay. Bueller so, did, did pretty well, but then allowed two walks, I believe, in that sixth inning with two outs, and the heart of the order was coming up. So it looked like to be a time for a change. You don't want a three-run home run getting you out of this. You bring in Kershaw. And I think that right there, that that should have been it. Now hindsight's twenty twenty, though. So, right. And I think he just said, "Okay, I went with my number one. Here's my number two. Um, we should get out of this, no problem." And I think that's where he he what he was thinking there. And again, like you said, hindsight's twenty twenty, and everything like that. But um, I I I just think that he went with his best, and he ended up dying with his best. So um, unfortunately. For the Dodgers, they're going to have to wait another year and spend another $250 million on players. But, um, you know, the Nationals kept on rolling. So, uh, you know, they seem to be on some kind of a run right now, which we'll get into once we get caught up in the next round. Yeah, so what? let's just go over the Yankees and Twins right now and how mean is it of the Yankees to just not let the Twins ever win a game in the playoffs? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, that series was very much a bug in a windshield type of event. Because I mean, there was just—I don't think there was a game in that series where a Yankee fan should have been um, nervous or on edge about anything. They were, 
they were going about their business. Fans were thinking about Houston right away. And, um, you know, there's really not much else to say about this. It was a clean three-game sweep. Um, the Yankee bullpen is still fantastic. And, um, you know, Aaron Boone's just got luxury toys to play with in uh, in the Bronx. Um, yeah, so I'm pretty sure it's 13 straight losses to the Yankees and 16 total straight losses in the playoffs since 2004 when I think they won the first game of the 2004 Divisional Series and then lost the next three to the Yankees, lost the next three to the Athletics in 06, lost the next three to the Yankees in 09, lost the next three to the Yankees in 10, lost to the Yankees in the wild card, lost to the Yankees. Like it, The fact that they're always going up against the Yankees, is this more of like unless the Yankees are just getting easier competition or just the Twins are at the wrong spot at the wrong time? I think they're just in the wrong spot at the wrong time. It seems like every time they play the Yankees, the Yankees just come in on a heater. And, you know, you like to say that the Twins really don't deserve the outcomes that they're getting because, like we said, there's neither game was ever really in doubt. I mean, um, all all uh, Aaron Boone needs is a starter to go five innings, come out with a lead, and then just hand it over to the to the Cadillac of bullpens pretty much. And they, they just mow everybody away. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's very much the twins are just in a bad spot at the, at the worst time possible. And, um, unfortunately they have to play the New York Yankees every time. So I think we already went over this last episode, but I'll bring it up again. Jake Odorizzi did not get the start in game two. He had 30 starts, he went 15 and seven in those starts and compiled 178 strikeouts. And why can't I find, I could never find ERA right away. It's 3.51 ERA. So pretty, pretty decent numbers, not overall the best. They went with their rookie pitcher, Randy Dobnak, who had five games started, nine appearances. It went two and one. Had an ERA of 159 in 28 and a third innings pitched. Um, gave up 27 hits, um, nine runs, five of them earned, one home run, five walks. Randy Dobnak got the start in game two. And I don't know, unless you are undefeated and have that ERA a lower than, I'd say, like 1.5, and he's at 1.59, and not allowing like Verlander, like to, let's just say like a 0.8 whip. Um, why are you going to this guy in game two? Like this, is, this was confusing to me. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It's kind of confusing, but um, I mean, if, did it really matter who the twins were putting up? I don't think they had anybody in their rotation that was going to, um, you know, really give them a, a, an elite shot at winning this series, let alone a game in the series. I mean, I know Jake Orderizzi is it was effectively probably what their best pitcher all year, but I mean against that lineup, I mean they're that lineup so deep. Um, you know, you make one mistake and it's going to be 450 feet into left or right field. So um, I, I I know what you're trying to cook up here on on a controversy of why they didn't start this guy and maybe they could have won the series. I just don't see there any any way that the Twins would have been able to win that series. 
No, and I'm not saying like this was the make or break moment, but it's uh, a first year manager with Rocco Baldelli, and he made a pretty head scratching decision when he decided to go with Dobnak instead of Odorizzi. So that's really all I wanted to bring up. Um, I think the Twins would have had a moral victory in the series if they got just one win. So I think that's kind of where I'm getting with this story where set yourself up with the best situation to win each day. Yep, I got you. I got you. So we ready to move on after this uh, Yawn Festivus series because there's nothing to talk about? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So this next one was, I believe, the most surprising with how it went down. The Astros getting the the wins in, in games one and two in Houston by dominating pitching by Verlander and Cole. But the Rays putting up some clutch hitting and smart hitting in games three and four to tie up the series and move it into game five. But it was the cold train all day looking to stop anything in front of him or if the cold train just run over anything in sight without even looking. And no, this is probably, this is scary what Garrett Cole has been doing all season long and it's still continuing into the playoffs and he'll be starting game three tied up one, one in the series and championship series, which we'll get to later. But this, I think this is the most surprising because it went to game five and how it went to game five. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember talking with my one buddy at work and it's kind of a funny story because he just got into the sports betting down at the rivers. So he's been trying to talk up all these, all this, uh, all this nonsense that he knows what's going on and everything. Well, going into game four, he comes into my office and he goes, Oh, you gotta, you gotta hammer, hammer the, the, uh, the Astros. He got a hall of fame pitcher and Verlander on the mound, hammer them. It's, it's a foregone conclusion. They're going to the ALCS. Well, I turn on, turn on my uh, laptop, my little stream that I got going on. And before you know it, it is three, nothing Tampa Bay. And I mean, they are just scorching Verlander. And I go, oh, okay, yep, he's wrong. So, I mean, it, it was, it was incredible. Game four, how they were just able to jump on Verlander early. They got their start. Their um, they're pitching the uh, the run support they needed early. So all they had to do was stir strikes and um, just don't, don't leave anything crazy out over the plate or get any leadoff walks. And they were able to cruise into game five. And then, like you said, unfortunately, they had to run into Garrett Cole, who is just on a absolute run right now. Um, he's struck out, what, 30 people in three starts or two starts? Yeah, in two starts, I believe. Like, that is absolutely absurd. And um, I don't know if you were if you saw it Friday, but Mark DeRosa on the MLB Network, former Brave, thank you, um, he did a breakdown of Garrett Cole on how he's pitching people. And it's just not fair. Like he's dotting 99 on the outside corner and then hitting like an 87 slider. That's just falling off a table. Like I just, I don't know how people are able to, to even make contact at all, let alone even get it into fair territory. So, um, you know, the, the Astros did move on and we got the heavyweight matchup. We, uh, we all hope to see in the uh, in the Yankees and Astros. Yeah, I mean, 
did you? I don't think the Pirates knew that Garrett Cole had a slider. So it's nice to see how he can use it in this new organization and be one of the best pitchers in all of Major League Baseball. Yeah, and you know Charlie Morton learned how to not be a pitch to contact guy and you know strike a guy out or two. I miss them. I miss. <laughs> I mean, obviously, uh, obviously, I miss Garrett Cole more. But Charlie Morton was kind of like that more like comforting person on and the on the team and on the rotation. I, I used to love hearing Charlie Morton's like pregame like interview or whatever he would do because it always felt like I was in uh, psychology class. Like his interviews were always like, you know, that's why we play the game, isn't it? Just to have fun. We have fun. We win. We have more fun. And it was like, yeah, Charlie Morton really got me going today to, you know, get through the rest of my shift today at work. You know, but he used to crack me up. Yeah, Charlie, Charlie Morton is like the one of the most humble dudes you'll ever meet. So um, big ups to him. I'll just give yeah. him MVP of the week right now. I don't care. <laughs> Former Brave too, by the way. So that's that's another reason I like him. Let's just—he's our MVP of the show this week. <laughs> we already got that covered. So, all right, let's let's move on to the ALCS because we just went over that Astros and Yankees. This is the matchup that we've all been waiting for. A lot of people suspect this being the winner of this series is the World Series champion. So Yankees come out a blazing right away with a seven nothing win in the first game on Saturday. But then it was the Astros who hung in there in, in game two. They had the lead at first, and a two-run home run had them in the deficit by one run, and they were able to tie it up pretty pretty shortly after that. But it was the play in the bottom of the sixth inning when Altuve misplayed a ground ball. Correa came over to help out as LeMahieu rounds third. Correa fires it to home, and they save that run from scoring. Fast forward to the bottom of the 11th inning. First pitch from Jay Happ, and Carlos Correa just bangs it opposite field. And if you want to hear about playing loud, that was that moment of the of the playoffs so far, was that walk-off home run to tie up the series 1-1. 1-1, send it to the Bronx, and that dude, Garrett Cole, is on the mound looking to just once again, run over everything in his path. I, I well, I didn't really leave you with anything to talk about there. But <laughs> what what have you what have you um, enjoyed so far about the first two games, and what do you expect to see as it moves over to New York? Uh, the first two games, from what I've what I've taken from them, um, it's power against power. It's a hundred percent the Astros pitching against the the Yankee bats. Uh, the bats have shown that they can get a piece of Verlander and Granke early. Their biggest challenge is clearly going to be Garrett Cole. The, you know, he's leading the playoffs in strikeouts because he strikes out thirty people a game. But um, the the one person for the for the Yankees that has been really impressive for me has been Glybar Torres. This kid has just been, felt so comfortable in these playoffs so far. And it, it seems like he's got ice cold, ice cold water going through his veins because he, he just comes up with clutch hit after clutch hit. Um, he got everything going in game one for for the Yankees, um, get, jumping on Granky, eventually getting him chased uh, to get the route going. Um, 
And as far as game two, I think that just came down to the Yankees just ran out of bullpen arms and they had to go to to the uh, to their starting rotation arms, which is kind of their downfall a little bit. So I think for them, they can't afford for games to go into extra innings because you're going to start getting into your your starters that might not see see a start, but they're there as an extra arm. I just think that if they can keep it within nine innings and they can have a lead after five, the Yankees are good. But they 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 got to stay out of extra innings because the more arms they keep coming in, I just don't think once you get past the big name arms like. Uh, like Chapman and and their and uh, their other guys, I just don't think that they can survive once you get past the big names in that bullpen. So, you could argue that if the Yankees maybe um, don't win Game One, but end up winning Game Two, kind of like how the Astros did, where obviously you're not walking off, but you're winning the game late because of not bullpen help. I was going to say the Yankees probably have the momentum going into game three, but that's not the case with the way how game two ended with Houston winning it in heroic fashion and having who might be the the Cy Young pitcher um, of the AL going game three in your home territory. So I think that everything was set for the Yankees to just take over in the first two games and look to just even flex harder um, after or going into game three and showing off what the bats can do in that little league ballpark. Yeah, it's going to be real interesting because uh, Garrett Cole, I mean, not to say he's not going to have his best stuff, but um, he definitely can't afford to give up very little contact. It's got to be weak contact that he gets because – if anybody squares anything up, it's probably gone, right? You know, there's no chance that, um, you know, he gives up anything hard. And if it's in the air, it's going to be gone. So um, he's got to be on his best game. I, the one advantage, and I don't get why baseball does this. I get that there's TV and everything like that. But the 3 o'clock start, you're going to have the shadows. It's going to favor the pitching. So I think game three is going to end up going to Houston. But once they start getting games, you know, that start at night, gets a little colder, I think that favors the Yankees more than it does the Astros. The only time that Garrett Cole faced off against the Yankees was April 9th. He gave up three runs in seven innings and struck out six. So this was before Garrett Cole was the absolute Coltrane tearing everyone apart. You said, um, that, was, you said that was April 11th, right? April 9th. Ninth, so that arguably might have been his first start of the year, right? Uh, I'd say first maybe or second, second or third. I'd so say second I, or third. one of the other. Yeah, so I mean, he's not exactly fully loose in that start yet either. Um, but I think, and I mean, I'm patting myself on the back for this one. I think that backs backs up my theory of it being cold. Could be a, a night, a cold night in New York. That I think that might be a factor. If, if we get deep in the series and he makes a second start in the series. Now, don't get me wrong, but Luis Severino, I believe, is starting game three for the Yankees. And this is a guy who was hurt all season long and has now made his, uh, he made his appearance middle of September and going into the, going into the season as the ace and, 
he is kind of like the opposite of what Cole is right now, where he's just going to go until like 110 pitch mark, 120 pitch mark. Severino might not be out there that much longer after 70 pitches because of how little he's thrown so much this year. And that's another reason why I think the Yank or the not the Yankees, the Astros have the the better hand is just because of the pitcher itself. Yeah, I I I definitely agree with you. I think it's kind of a uh it's kind of a gamble to go with Severino, although he did make a couple good appearances after he came back. Um I think the Yankees would have preferred for him to get a, an extended look, but I think it, he may just as well go five innings, get a lead early, and then you hand it to the bullpen, which would be business as usual. So um, I, th- I think it comes down to the Yankee bats. Are they able to, to attack Eric Cole? And are, can they, uh, can they you know, jump on him early and get him to pitch for, uh, trailing in a game? And if they're able to do that, I think it just becomes business as usual. Severino gets maybe 60 to 70 pitches. And then we hand it to the bullpen. You hand it to the Cadillac, and then they hopefully uh, nail it down. So I think that the series will come back to Houston, but it will only be for one game in Houston, just the way we think, the way things are rolling. Garrett Cole gets game three. Um, don't know the starters off the top of my head. It'll probably be Grinky in game four. Um I think the Yankees probably come out on top in game four because Grinky hasn't been that great so far in the playoffs. Like he has basically been the one kryptonite to this big three rotation um, that we all expected to just run through everyone. And winner of game five, who I believe will be Houston, will win this series. So that's what I got. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think Houston's going to win game three, but I think New York is going to take four and five. Houston takes six, and then who knows what happens in Game Seven? I mean, I'm all for a Game Seven. Like this is especially this is the series I want to watch. Want to watch the most? Yeah, and I mean the the Cardinals and Nationals have been a, a good series. We'll get in de- depth into them next, but um, I think this is the series that everybody w- wanted. They're getting, and it's living up to everything that it should be. So I think that'll do it for the ALCS. So let's let's bring it on over to the NLCS and you know Jeff I know you weren't on the show that week but this is my NL represent NL representative for the World Series who I'm pretty sure if I remember the stat correctly is the first team in championship series history to have the first two games first two starters or however many pitchers they use but these were two starters that went six-plus innings of no-hit baseball in games one and two, um, where one of them I didn't even expect to be that one player, that one pitcher to be the representative of a flirting with a no-hitter in the championship series. That was Anibal Sanchez in game one, and then Max Scherzer doing Max Scherzer things in game two. Nationals up 2 nothing in the series as it heads to, to Washington, Tonight, the game's going on right now. I think you have the game on. Has there been any update in that? Yeah, we got 4 nothing. bottom four. Um, Kurt Suzuki just singled. Victor Robles coming up. Jack Flaherty's kind of been struggling a little bit. The Nationals have been able to jump on him pretty good uh, so far. Uh, Steven Strasburg is doing Steven Strasburg-type things tonight, too. So it's been 
pretty uh, pretty elementary for uh, for Mr. Strasburg in uh, in Washington. So th- a possible three nothing series lead for this wild card team that was four outs away from being eliminated in the wild card game to Josh Hader and the Brewers. This has been a great story, I believe, since Game 50. And Game 50 has always been the landmark for this team. But this has been a great story because it it's a story of how the this team never gives up its fights in any particular game. They're, they were on the dire straits of Game 5 of the Dodgers that we already talked about, where Kershaw's on the mound, where playoff Kershaw showed up, but... Realistically, you're you you think, all right, could this be it? But the mere the the miraculous moments appear, heroic moments are coming up. And can we give credit to one of the other great young players of this of this era coming to fruition? Juan Soto, twenty years old and just belting hits and home runs and clutch situations like he's been in the majors for 10 years, almost like he's Mike Trout. Yeah. I mean, Juan Soto has been fantastic so far in the, uh, in the playoffs for the, for the nationals. Um, some people have called him the equivalent of Ronald Acuna for the Washington nationals. He's been that good. Um, pro- some say he should have won the rookie of the year last year, except a guy named Ronald Acuna kind of went off as well. But and I'm not saying that just because I'm a Braves fan, but um, Juan Soto is very much the real deal. Um, the amount of confidence that he carries when he's in the box, um, you know, he has such a great eye for the plate. He has just been fantastic. Um, Anthony Rendon has been doing such a great job, but again, the pitching has just been kind of the heart and soul, the starting pitching to be more specific, the starting pitching has been the heart and soul of this nationals team. Um, like you said, Steven Strauss or, um, Max Scherzer has been doing a great job. Um, um, Steven Strasburg is doing doing a good job currently, um, and uh, Anibal Sanchez, who what what a great story this guy is. I mean, he was almost out of baseball two two years ago. Kind of reinvents himself as a Brave, get gets himself a two year contract with the Nationals. Um, you know, it's it, it's been a really cool story to see him be as successful as he is, and. and you know, I kind of said that the the Nationals um, were would be in the driver's seat if they could win Game One in St. Louis. They did get that win. Now you got now the, the Cardinals have to beat Scherzer, Strasburg, and Corbin down the stretch. And right now they're they're kind of staring at a uh, an O three O three deficit. Um, you know, it right now with uh, with the Nationals being up for nothing. This would be if the Cardinals go down three nothing, the only team to ever come back from that three nothing deficit in baseball was the two thousand four Boston Red Sox in the ALCS. I don't see this Cardinals team if they go down three nothing being able to overcome this. And that's because you would have to once again face off against either Max Scherzer or Steven Strasburg. And I'm not even including Anibal Sanchez in there, but you're getting one of those two regardless if you get it to game six or seven. And I don't see that happening for the St. Louis Cardinals, that this is their moment to win today. And if they don't, I think 
the series is over for them. It's just a matter of when. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Say say the Nationals finish this out. They're up 3-0. How many games does this go? Do, I think it would go six. I'll give them six. That think, they'll be able to extend the series. I think it could be over in as little as four. It could be a sweep. I mean, if memory serves me right, Patrick Corbin should be the next pitcher of this series. And although he hasn't been the most electric player and he's not the Patrick Corbin that we've seen in Arizona, um, he will put them, I believe, in a good position. And this Cardinals offense, as, as on fire as it's been at certain times in the season, it's also gone ice cold. And I think this is just one of those moments when they're just not getting the run support. I mean, you look at games two, three, and four against the Braves. They put up five runs, I believe. And in one of those games, two and three, they scored one run in all of those 18 innings. They just happened to get the clutch hitting at the end of game four being held up by their pitching and game five was an anomaly. That's that is an MLB record. It's not going to, it doesn't happen at all. So they're just at that point where the pitching can't keep themselves up with only scoring one run a game or two runs a game at most. And I think it's just kind of dying out for the Cardinals and this is just how it ends. Yeah, I agree with you. The pitching for, for the Cardinals has been, has been good. It's kind of kept them afloat, but, um, you know, when you've only got, they got what, five hits since game, uh, inning four of the, uh, of the, of game five of the DS. So, I mean, um, the hitting has not, not been there for them. Um, Paul Goldschmidt and Marcel Zuna have kind of gone, uh, dry a little bit, which have been kind of the driving forces of the, of the, uh, lineup for the Cardinals, um, I could see it going six, and that's just playing off desperation. You beat Patrick Corbin. You figure Anibal Sanchez probably has to come back for game five. That way, if, you know, worst comes worst, you get to game six, and you're just throwing Scherzer, and then you have Strasburg for game seven. But, um, yeah, I think this is effectively over. I don't think it's going to be a sweep. I think it ends in five. There's a difference between – the miracle that happened in 2012 where Pete Cosma of all random St. Louis Cardinals heroes in 2012 to, you could say upset the nationals, but Steven Strasburg was rest was put on rest. Oh, for the rest yeah. of the season oh my God. How, were, do na- how do national fans like continue to be okay with that? I don't know. Like, like I would be looking back at that. Like, are you effing kidding me? Are the picture of, our generation in terms of like, well, not Clayton Kershaw, but like of, of nationals fans generation. And we're going to put them on rest in the playoffs. Like, are you freaking kidding me? Yeah. So, and then the rarest of all heroes, Pete Cosma hits a, what was like almost like a infield fly should have been, but they scored two runs on two outs with the bases loaded in the ninth on this weird hit by Cosma. And, ended up moving the Cardinals to the next series and um, going from there. So I think it's going to be over tomorrow. You know, you over there say game six, so it goes back to St. Louis. Um, If this does go back to St. Louis somehow 
if the Cardinals pull off some magic here in game three, um, I would, if, if the Cardinals win game three and it does go back to St. Louis, I can see the Cardinals winning the series, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's, I think it's over. All right. All right. Does that do it for baseball talk? I think we talked about everything that's going on in the playoffs or got caught up with everything, huh? Yeah. Um, one more thing. I guess Mark Kotze might be the manager of the Pirates. I don't know how to feel about that. I think it's cool so that you're not just going to get some random um, John Russell who has no emotion out there. So uh, John Russell doing crosswords in the dugout during games. <sighs> did it not look like he was back in the heyday? Yes, it did, and it pissed it looked, me off anytime I saw like, his face. It looked like the bench coach had to like shake him, like, "Hey, we got to go get the pitcher." Oh yeah, right. Yeah, I got it. Okay, yeah, give me a lefty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what What is a seven letter word for losing? <laughs> oh my god! Fuck going. Perfect. Oh yeah, yeah right. Can, can we use that in a sentence? Yeah, we're buckoing this game right now, meaning we're it's just imploding in front of our faces. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so Mark Cotte might be the manager. John or Joe Madden might be the next LA Angels manager. I kept saying the Ooh. Padres, but LA Angels I, are, look like the next destination for Joe Madden. I feel like he would thrive there in, yes. the, in, in Los Angeles of Anaheim. Yes, and they just need to get better pitching, and they're, they would be set I up. I think so, yeah. I think they could use another bat, too. I wouldn't mind seeing them go out and spend in a nice little chunk of change on an arm and a bat. And one more that I know, um, Brad Osmus has been interviewed by the Padres. So the Padres like to have mediocre managers uh, continually ruin their <laughs> possible success. God, why? There's a lot of people saying Joe Matt. That's like the place for Joe Madden because it's pretty much the same setup as the Cubs. I I don't know. I don't get it. I don't get it. If the Padres want to go after Osmus, let them go after Osmus. But yeah, Angels and Joe Madden have basically been linked and flirted as the number one destination for each person. So <laughs> I think that's another reason why the Padres oh are going God. after Osmus. Oh. Oh my god! Oh, there's just organizations in baseball that just make you laugh. Don't isn't there? It's oh, for like, sure. The Pirates are one of them. Pirates are one of them. Padres, Padres are probably right behind them because, geez, oh man, remember the year they went like all in and they signed like Matt Kemp and had like, did they have like a hundred hundred million dollars invested into their outfield? They got Craig Kimbrell in the off season. Yep. And just like it just blew up in their face. I think they finished that year like 15 out of first place. Yeah, they definitely get the, the try hard award for sure. <laughs> they do. You got to appreciate that about them, though. At least they try. <laughs> so, all right, let's move it over to hockey talk. Jeff, what are we starting with? All right, let's start off with uh, let's talk about a couple teams that are that are still unbeaten, which is okay. one, one we were kind of. Very much in agreement. The adopted Colorado Avalanche to this podcast. Um, going to go see them on Wednesday night. Going to see them live in person. You know, maybe give uh, give uh, you know Nate McKinnon and Kel McCarr a little you know icy takes bump there. Um, yeah, hopefully we go into a shootout though. We need the Penguins to get get a point too. You know, we're not abandoning the hometown team by any means, but um, that should be an entertaining game to watch. If there's a game, Dave, that you should watch all year, it's this one. Um, so the Avalanche are still undefeated. They're five and zero. The other team that is still undefeated and has not lost in any fashion this year, 
the Colorado Avalanche and the Edmonton Oilers. Dave, what is going on in Edmonton that they they're just like, oh, we're gonna play hockey now? Did, I After, guess they I guess they remembered they had Connor McDavid. They had Connor McDavid. <laughs> they got they got a goal scorer in James Neal. And who would have thought a coach put James Neal in a in a top six role with some playmakers that can get him the puck and he can score? He looks like James ne- the James Neal that scored forty goals here in Pittsburgh. Yeah, that this the, the James Neal that is out there is the real deal. Like this is <laughs> another reason why Edmonton is having this much success. Um, it's Mike Smith and goalie for Edmonton now, right? Calgary yes. Edmonton did a yeah. little switch there in the free agency. Yes. And, who is the head coach? It's not Hitchcock anymore, correct? Dave Tippett. Yeah, so, I mean, just having that change from Hitchcock, which I think ruined them all season long. You had 200-point scores on the same team, and you're almost dead last in all of hockey. Um, this is just a, a nice change of pace, change of scenery for Edmonton to just do what they've been supposed to do. I don't know if, if that was even... Uh, that might not but, that might not have been a, a complete sentence. No, it might not have been, but <laughs> they, they just are doing the things that needed to be done since Connor McDavid was there, which are just score a bunch of goals. They don't really have to play defense as much when you are getting um, in these five games. You're scoring over four goals a game um, now. Four four point four and a half goals a game. You can get away with that. Right now, I think they can do more. I think they can do better than this. But these Edmonton Oilers are just doing what they have been supposed to do since Connor McDavid got drafted, which is just score a lot of goals. And then obviously you score more goals than the other team, but score a lot of goals. Here's the one thing that's real interesting about the Oilers, too, is, yeah, McDavid and Jari Soto are doing their things. Connor McDavid has... has uh, 12 points on the year. He's currently he's currently leading the league in points. I know it's October, but the fact that he's got 12 points, eight of those are assists, and I'm pretty sure a good chunk of those are also on the power play, where James Neal also has five power play goals out of his seven. So their power play is clicking. James Neal is getting the secondary scoring that Connor McDavid and Leon Drysaddle have been begging for for the last few years in Edmonton. So I think that's the biggest thing with their turnaround is that they're they're getting the uh, the production from their big guys like McDavid and Drysital, but they're also getting that second wave of of a guy who who can be a proven goal scorer, and he's collecting his points on the power play and even strength. So um, I think this is going to be interesting. I don't know how long it's going to last in Edmonton. I hope it's a while because um, this is a fun I, team to follow. I think, yeah, one, it's a fun team to follow. Two, I want to see the Battle of Alberta mean something. And it it seems like, for now, both teams are quality teams, and they play two completely different styles where you got Edmonton high-flying, you got McDavid, you got Dreisaitl, you got James Neal, you got guys on the back end, end, Darnell Nurse, who's able to move the puck pretty well. Um you know they play that high skill game, for, a little bit similar to the Pittsburgh Penguins, and then you got the the uh, the Calgary Flames that play more of a, a gritty type style. You got Matthew Gachuk over there who's getting in 
verbal arguments with uh, Drew Doughty and his little uh, side sessions with, with Drew Doughty. Um, you got Milan Lucic. You have that whole trade that happened throughout the year. So I, I, I hope the Battle of Alberta starts to mean something again because that could be a very, very fun uh, rivalry to get back going in the NHL. I don't think it's Wednesday night rivalry anymore. It's just like Wednesday night hockey on NBC. But yeah. that's what you want to see. You want to see Edmonton Calgary on that Wednesday night take the stage. At, um, they probably wouldn't play until 10 o'clock. They'd be the second game of the night. But this, I agree with you. Like This needs to just l- hype up a little bit more. And when you have teams like Vegas up there, surprisingly right now, Anaheim, we'll, we'll see how that continues to move on. Um, and I think eventually San Jose will will make their move. Um, last time they were zero and three. Now they're two and four, so two and one in the last three. This like the Pacific Division, although going into the season didn't seem that great to follow, might be a fun one to watch. I think another sleeper team too. And again, I I know it's early. Send hate tweets, send texts. I don't care. Uh, Vancouver is an interesting one too. Is you know you got Elias Patterson, Brock Besser, uh, JT Miller there. Um, you know I think if they can stay afloat and stay in the wild card picture, um, I think they'll be an intriguing team to watch too. The, the biggest question there is goaltending, a hundred percent. You also got Quinn Hughes over there too, the uh, the young defenseman that they drafted a couple years ago. So um, you know I think that's going to be kind of like a sleeper one that you could be like ah they could maybe stick around depending on how they do within their division. But um, I think that that's one that you got to kind of keep your eye on as well. Um, so one thing that I would like to bring up, at least before we get into the Pens, you know, review, um, is how well the Buffalo Sabres have been playing. Now, we I didn't really expect them to just make this leap immediately. They're, I mean, they're 5-0-1. Of 11 points so far in the season, so they're only lost. They still got a point in, out of it. Um, the plus 12 goal differential is nice in their six games and 20, 25 goals. You're averaging 4.25 a game. Um, I just I want to see both Buffalo and Edmonton be successful at the same time because of Eichel and um, McDavid. Just like how we hope this will flourish with uh, Capo Caco and um, Jack Hughes. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of uh, Canadian fans that want Buffalo to be good because they've even had some good rivalries with uh, with the Leafs. They've had a good good rivalry with um, kind of like in the mid 2000s. They had a good rivalry with Ottawa for a little bit. Um, you know, Montreal. You can get a good rivalry with them too. So I think I think again that that those are rivalries that. Um, maybe early on in the 2000s, they were kind of going and then they kind of died off when, um, you know, the, the Leafs kind of fell off and then Buffalo fell off. Now, Ottawa has co- is kind of rebuilding itself. Uh, Montreal's kind of a, a, uh, a, a team that flirts with the playoffs, but they might not quite be ready uh, quite yet. So um, I agree with you, too. I think Buffalo is another team that hopefully they can uh, hang on. They were off to a similar start last year where they came out of the gate hot and then kind of died off a little bit. So, um, you know, they've had some impressive wins. The, the 7-2 win against New Jersey is one that's, that's pretty impressive, beating Florida 3-2. Um, the only thing that uh, 
that you kind of have to circle here is a lot of their wins are coming at home. Um, they have a, a, a 3-1 win against uh, Pittsburgh on the road on opening night that we're, we know of, but uh, they lost it in uh, overtime against Columbus on the road. So um, they have a nice little little road trip coming up after today. They go on their uh, their uh, California trip from Anaheim, L.A., and San Jose. So it should be interesting to see how um, how they do on that trip and uh, how they can do away from, from Buffalo. So what do we want to get into next? So we'll we'll go into the uh to the pens review um th- th- uh throughout the week here. Um the city seems to be on a different uh feeling about this team after they uh they went two to one, then they fly out to Minnesota to uh to take on the wild. They went seven to four. Sidney Crosby doing Sidney Crosby things, pretty much carrying the team. But they're also getting help from their from their uh, their youngsters in their bottom six. They're getting uh, production from Sam Lafferty. They're getting uh, production from Zach Aston Reese. Um, Teddy Bluger, I believe, factored in into some offense as well. Um, Blandizi as well. So the the nice thing is they go two and zero on this road trip to uh, through Minnesota and Winnipeg. Um, Things are looking up, but you got to wonder how long the bottom six is going to continue to produce. Um, I, I like Mike Sullivan has been saying time and time again since uh, Nick Bukestad and Evgeny Malkin have gone out. This is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for these bottom six kids to really show that they can play meaningful NHL games when they count. Um, you know, it's one thing to do it in the middle of September against some some kid that's getting sent back to junior. It's quite another to do it when you're doing against an NHL regular. So um, they're going to obviously be tested. They have a they have a tough couple teams coming in. Um, their next about six games are going to be tough. You got Colorado coming in, Dallas, Vegas, and then they fly down to uh, Florida and Tampa Bay, and uh, they fly to Dallas uh, next week as well. So they got a tough stretch coming up here, but. Um, I think this will be a good test for the Penguins to see where they're at. Um, and it's good to see what you have as well with the, uh, with, with the kids. Can they withstand playing against, uh, some stiffer competition? So, um, the game against Winnipeg, not in the seven, two win, but the four, one loss, uh, last Tuesday, it seemed that they obviously can't play the same game that they had three years ago, which was just beat everyone up and down the ice. And that's what the Jets did to them. And now when you go to the the game against Anaheim, um, I missed that one, but just more of slower paced game and scoring at the right opportune times. But then the last two on the road, especially putting up seven in each one of those games. And it's their third seven goal game of the season. It's nice to see early production from the Penguins and especially winning in big fashion like that. And it always comes down to depth scoring and for any hockey team to be successful. So the fact that Zach Aston Reese is um, adding, adding to the, the goal tabs, you have Marcus Pedersen, who, what was he like a plus four or a plus three or five yesterday against the jets. Um, just be, being all over the ice and, now you're setting yourselves up for another three games slate at home. A lot of home games early on this year, and I think the Pens can really capitalize on that. 
but you know they've they're two and two so far at home, undefeated on the road. These are decent teams coming in and into your place this week. If they get two wins, a bonus if they get an overtime loss. Two wins and an overtime loss. I'm okay with that this week for the Pittsburgh Penguins. I'm very okay. I think that's a successful week for them. I I would agree with you. The one thing I'll say, I, if if they end up losing a game in in regulation, I I I would understand it. Um, but I I think the big one is going to be um, Colorado. I think that's going to be the stiffest one. Vegas, they seem to play pretty well against. Um, the da- the Dallas one, I don't know how to feel about Dallas quite yet. They've kind of came out slow out of the gate, but um, but yeah, I agree with you that you know they're they're getting help scoring wise up and down the lineup. But again, Sidney Crosby is doing what Sidney Crosby does. Jake Gensel's feeding off that, and it seems like Dominic Simone. Um, I'm not ready to say he's he should be a staple on that first line, but um, if you follow the analytics and everything. He's doing exactly what the analytics are saying. He's get, getting um, possession time for Sidney Crosby and Jake Gensel, and it's creating scoring chances on the top line. And when, you're, when your guys go down, you need to make sure that your top guys are able to be, be able to, to carry you and to score some big goals for you. So, um, you know, I think it'll be interesting how this goes, uh, this next stretch of games for the next two weeks. And, uh, We'll see what happens. If he, if Dominic Simone can put up, I'll just put a rough number out there, 17 goals, I think that would be a fair over-under for Dominic Simone just because of how much more time he'll get with Sidney Crosby and Jake Gensel if they keep continuing to play this way. That's the only wild card, I, I believe, for this, that I believe in this team being su- successful is if Dominic Simone can play just as well with Jake Gensel and Sidney Crosby. You get leadership from that first line with Crosby. You get a almost like a, a James Neal-esque score with Jake Gensel right beside Sidney Crosby. Can Dominic Simone keep up his end of the bargain there and make sure that this first line sets up the rest of the team for just obvious, for good scoring chances? So... I think that's the only question going forward with this first line. The analytics are there, but I want to see Dominic Simone put up his end of the bargain as well. I think, too, who, and I agree with you 100%. I think between 15 and 20 goals for Dominic Simone is a perfect number. Um, you know, if, you get, if you get to the 20-goal mark, that is fantastic. But if he's getting between 15 and 20 goals, I think that's, that's a fair number to expect from him playing with Crosby and Gensel. Um, but again, he he has he has to finish. If he doesn't get those points, um, it's it it's a chance for other other teams to hone down on eighty seven and fifty nine, and and then you know you're you're basically saying okay, Dominic Simone, you can go ahead and beat us. So um, I agree with you hundred percent on that. Another pleasant pleasant surprise too for the Penguins um, on the back end, John Marino, or I call him Dan Marino because. I, you know, every Yinzer I know is probably calling him that. Um, John Marino has been a fantastic uh, uh, young defenseman for the Penguins. He he's very defensively responsible. He moves the puck well. Um, so far, he's played well. He's played with both Jack Johnson and Erica Branson so far, and uh, so far, flying flying colors he has passed with playing with those two. Um, it's very encouraging to see that you're starting to get a. Uh, 
a little bit of youth into this Penguin lineup, something we hadn't seen for the last two years. So let's see how the how the Pens do into this next week, and when we get your review for the all three for the three home games, Jeff. Would it be fitting to just end the show on some good beef in hockey between yes. two players? Yes. This is something hockey has been missing for so long. Um, do you have the whole backstory on this? Because I kind of know enough, but not not quite enough detail. Do you do you have like the whole backstory with this? Um, so I have a story up here from Sportsnet. Um, it looks like it. Uh, might have been from Eric Francis. Now I want to. I'm trying to find out if this is the most recent story because it looks like this would be March 25th, 2019. But this kind of sets up for what happened recently. If you want to go in and try to find um, the most recent story, um, I I saw it through the score, Jeff. If that's if that helps you try to find the most recent story. But okay, um, this one from Eric Francis. Um, it starts off with uh, an interview. When Dowdy was asked if he thought his rivalry with Matthew Kachuk was a healthy one, and Dowdy said, "Oh no, I have no respect for him. None. I respect everyone else, and I'll never talk to him off of the ice." Um, they got, they've been in some battles on the ice this past season, and you know Kachuk was on the the Flames being the number one team in the West last year, and the Kings were just non-existent but drew dowdy has almost had a reputation for maybe sparking things whether it's uh warranted or not and kind of says it says it as it is when it comes to you know one-on-one rivalries like this or how he thinks a player is viewed and he shouldn't be viewed this way um when he i believe it was him bringing up the fact that brett brett burns is not that great of a defenseman because although he does score points, he doesn't know how to get back on defense and gets beat at least three times a game. So I don't know if that gave you enough time to just fill in what, what has happened more recently with these two. Yeah. So basically pretty much, um, you know, they going through the whole history, like you just did with the, uh, between Drew Doughty and, and Matthew Kachuk, uh, pretty much they played each other um, they they played on a Saturday or uh, I believe it was what Tuesday night last week they played and you know they had their typical on ice battle and everything and um go, going into the game pretty much Drew Dowdy um was kind of deflecting questions didn't really want to take questions on on what was going on with the uh with with their rivalry kind of being really passive aggressive. And um, he was pretty much saying that he has no respect for Matthew Kachuk. Um, he he mentioned in a quote here, um, in this is in reference to Mark Giordano, that he shows Geo respect. Uh, he's a Norris Trophy winner, but I have no respect for for Kachuk. Um, he he basically was kind of being passive aggressive, kind of not bringing any attention to it. And um, it's kind of funny when they when they played last week. Um, Drew Doughty ends up scoring the overtime winner. Kind of does some taunting towards the uh, the the Calgary fans, and it's been kind of just a it's it's been kind of just a grudge match between these two. That um, something we haven't seen in hockey for a long time, 
And his his quote his quote after the game they they were able to grab him um, for like the post game interview or whatever, and he pretty much just says that they both thrive under an emotional game. Um, he he made reference that he he thinks that uh, that Kachuk had three points. I think I had three points. I want to put it to rest. He's going to run me. That's his job. I'm gonna I'm going to hit him as many times as, I can, as he does in a game. I'm just going to not talk back and let 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 that kind of be it. So, way to struggle through that, by the way, Jeff. But um, <laughs> but it's just funny how it's it's more mind games through the media that these two are going through more than anything. Um, when they're on the ice, they want to kill each other, and then all of a sudden they're just like, "Oh, we'll just let it stay on the ice." When I think everybody in Canada and the United States knows that there's just no way that they're letting letting this go off off the ice as well. So um, it's, it's a rivalry that um, I think hockey is needed. Um, we haven't seen this in a while between just two individuals, not necessarily teams. And uh, we'll just see where this goes. And round two should be very, very interesting. So I'm trying to, um, I'm not going to find it now, but I was trying to find the most recent matchups in the regular season between the flames and the, the Kings. Cause I believe it was in March of this past season that Drew Doughty set up the overtime winner to Tanner Pearson, and he it was in Calgary, and that he also found himself shouting at the Calgary fans, doing a Yager salute, and then calling out Kachuk on the way to the locker room, saying that he's the most hated player in the NHL. So I like it. I'm I'm enjoying this. I I. This is obviously something, like you said, that hockey doesn't see very much, but it's cool to see two players be petty with each other. Whether it's coming mainly from one side, okay, I'm still kind of into this because as much as Drew Doughty's talked, he's putting his team in winning situations against Calgary as well. So at least he's backing it up. That's very true. The next time these two play, by the way, is this Saturday night. In LA, it's going to be a hockey night in Canada game. So, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully the uh, the NHL Network picks this one up because um, it should be entertaining from start to finish. Just doing an ISO cam on those two, just seeing what they're chirping at each other or what stuff goes uh, goes on behind the play. Because uh, for whatever reason in hockey, it seems like when two guys are really going at each other, they seem to find each other on the ice. So, all right, anything else? Uh, no, I think we're good. I think that's enough hockey talk. We, uh, we did baseball predominant. I kind of liked how we just kind of free flowed with it. Not a lot of stats or anything more of opinions. So let's, uh, let's wrap her up. All right. So I think we already gave our MVP of the week earlier. That was, um, um, Charlie Morton. So yeah. I just wanted to reiterate on that. The psychologist. <laughs> Charlie Morton, the psychologist. So if you're having... <laughs> Any mental issues, just hit him up. He'll he'll talk you through it. He's done for the season now. Um, so this has been the Icy Takes show. You know, it kind of went off the rails a little bit, but that's what we're good at. I think we might as well just stick to that. Um, you can follow us uh, or like us on Facebook, Icy Takes with Jeff and Big Dave. Follow us on Twitter at Icy Takes, I-C-E-Y Takes, all together one word, because that's the way we like to spell it. You can also follow me on twitter at big underscore day 52 at jchrist underscore 51 say send those braves hate tweets towards my way and send me the the love and 
all the love for picking the Nationals to beat the Dodgers first round and pick them to go to the World Series. Although it's not over yet, I like to get a little reconfirmation of, wow, that was a nice pick there, Dave. Because I don't get that very much. (laughs) (laughs) Hockey, Hockey season was bad for me, but I think I redeemed myself, even though the only one I messed up was the Brave series. I'm still good with my World Series picks. So. Okay, all right. I didn't put out picks this year because I would have homered it a lot. So, um, and I decided to go to a Steeler game instead of record this podcast. So, all right. So that was Jeff. This is Dave. This has been Icy Takes. Hopefully, we're better next week. But until then, stay icy, people. Love you guys. <laughs>